Thank you so much for listening to the Talking Classical podcast. I really hope that you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget that you can subscribe to the Talking Classical podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes and Spotify, where you can catch up with all of the previous episodes and you'll receive a notification every time a new episode is released. You can also follow the Talking Classical podcast on Twitter, on the Talking Classical blog and on Facebook and YouTube. Many thanks for listening once again. I hope that you'll be able to join me for the next episode very soon. We just kind of see how it how yeah. it goes, really. So, yeah. We've got a family performance of the Messian in uh, uh, November. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's so weird to do because um, yeah. we we have played trios together as a family, but um, yeah. my flatmate when I was at Royal College we did the B-Mars together oh yes um years ago and he tried to teach me the Messian Quartet he's a wonderful clarinetist oh, I thought I don't like the music I don't like it. <laughs> but now I love it yeah <laughs> so we're doing it together yeah. as a family what's it like um playing with your daughter <laughs> is it a totally different I guess it must be a different relationship because it, it? it sort of evolved a we did it when they were tiny and okay. then and that was that was fun and they were both very good so then they the older one, the older one was a cellist, and so I mean she and she became a big star. So that okay. was we played together. It was almost like having a um, having a colleague rather than a daughter when, okay. it got, when we got on stage, anyway. Yeah. And and then it, recently uh, Emma, who went to Oxford, and she literally took about a week before she went to Oxford. She was deciding whether to do classics or music. Yeah. And then, uh, so she she plumped for music and I yeah. sat her down and said, you're not going to get in, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very supportive father. Yeah. And anyway, she not, she got in and she thrived. And then she, she remember the Oxford Phil had a concerto competition, which yes, she won, yes. you say. Um, okay. Yeah, she said so she played, ended up playing with them. And I think that moment she thought, yeah, maybe I could be a violinist. And yeah. so she, um, but I'm, I'm really pleased that they, um, they went through an Oxbridge approach to playing an instrument because I'm sure it, okay. it, it's fertilised a, a much more sort of a creative yeah. mind than the conservative, I mean, yeah. conservatoire um, approach to learning. Yeah. They've, they've got questions to ask and yeah. ways of researching and looking after themselves, as it were, rather than being yeah. perhaps told by a uh, teacher. Yeah, but I guess it's it's two totally different approaches, isn't it? Conservatoire is yeah. more focused on performance, but then if you want to go to university, then it's much more cerebral, isn't it? Yeah. Your... I don't know. I I think that um, I I did that when I, when I did the BMARS at the Royal College. There was only about six of us that did the BMARS because it was oh, the before okay. before that was the days. Now everybody comes out with the BMARS. Okay. okay. So, yeah. Um, uh, and this was the days before that. What would happen was you'd go to the Royal College and you could take a performance diploma or you could take the GRSM graduate of the Royal Schools of Music okay. or you could do a London University degree Okay. and that London University degree um, was administered by somebody called Ian Spink I think at okay. Royal Holloway oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> and you do some and sometimes you'd go there for, for work and also you do things at Senate House or your exams mm -hmm. and, um, and so it was but I thought it was a useful um, adjunct to my one-to-one -one private piano lessons, as it were. Um, but I think that the fact that you're confronted with so many different kinds of music and so many um, uh, even quite obstructive professors who, who ask you questions and challenge you, mm. it's much better. It makes you much more able later in life to deal with your own problems. Mm. And both my children were 
well, particularly Joy, she didn't have a teacher after the age of 16. So um, she ah. she just taught herself. She was a really phenomenal cellist. So yeah. she's got everything sorted. And she thinks the most useful things she's done since are composition lessons and analysis. So mm. um, an analysis, of course, is really what you need you know, to yeah. understand how you want it to sound, yeah. rather than being told to turn the flute a quarter of an inch to the... Of course. <laughs> yeah. Anticlockwise. Yeah. And so... Do you take a similar sort of approach with your pianism? Well, uh, I think, I think, I suppose the, uh, um, at this stage of my life, the last twenty years or so, um, I've um, I've concentrated on Schubert. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, it doesn't mean I only play Schubert. No. Play a wide range of music. Yeah. But there was a moment where, when I got to thirty, when um, a colleague of mine said about nineteen ninety seven, which was two hundred years after the. Mm. Schubert. Yeah. And she had just come back from Montpellier, mm. where she had been leading the Academy of St. Martin in the Fields mm. in a, a performance of five Beethoven piano concertos with Alfred Brendel. And she said, oh, it was really interesting. He talked to me a lot. And he said, it's really important at some point to specialise, because by specialising, you, um, you learn at a higher level, says, which you can then apply to a wide range of repertoire. Mm. And I found that the skills of the de- of the degree were very useful. We said, well, let's do something. Unless we decided because mm-hmm. of the date we'd specialise in Schubert, there was pretty much nothing more than that. You know, mm-hmm. we just, just tried to get concerts and festivals and things and recordings. And it really helped us. You know, we, we yeah. put on, on cycles and learned the repertoire and struggled with the problems. And we, we'd had some skills, which we got from, you know, from, from what I'd attended in my degree course mm-hmm. <laughs> some of which yeah. I understood and some of which I didn't and uh, so that was very useful and it has I think enabled me to you know the experience of, of the success of focusing on Schubert for a while enabled me to focus on Beethoven and, and now Chopin and, uh, yeah. and, and and so this is where this end game project comes in really because yeah. it's, it's sort of the fruits of 25-30 years of study uh, yeah. uh, in, in a way that was independent mm-hmm. um, which is not to uh, decry any I had amazing teaching I yeah. had wonderful teachers um, three wonderful teachers and mm-hmm. so um, not to decry what they did for me at all yeah but, mm. um, so, so tell me about this end game concert series that you've yeah. devised then I mean what was the premise behind this what do you want your audiences to get out of this I know that you're trying to find new perspectives on Schubert and yes. Haydn and Yes, yeah, so it, it, obviously at the moment it involves four strands, and that's Haydn, Beethoven, Schubert, and Chopin, mm-hmm. and they're, they're composers that I found really uh, central to my work yeah. over the years. And Haydn was something that I always found very regenerative, very playful, um, very open to interpretive changes and. Uh, various different stances i always feel completely free when i'm playing Haydn. he just oh, seems to well it's like a blank canvas yeah um i don't feel as if i'm sort of having to wear 18th century clothes <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's 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 a huge wit and as i said this reward this this freedom in fact i once saw a brilliant lecture by um, Eleanor Bailey who wrote a good book on, okay. on Haydn and she talked about him saying being very welcoming and saying you know come into my house and you don't need to take your shoes off or mm. kick the dust off you <laughs> just just be comfortable kind of thing and yeah. I always feel that with him so I've found even at uh, times of physical injury I nearly always come back to the piano through Haydn mm. um, so I find find that and very liberating and, it's, and yeah. uh, in fact 
in terms of the 18th century, it enabled me to um, appreciate Mozart a lot more <laughs> um, and, and really treat him with a little bit less reverence than mm -hmm. I'd perhaps been guilty of previously. Yeah. Beethoven is Beethoven. I, I really came to Beethoven through the chamber music. Um, I made recordings in the noughties um, uh, of the complete um, pretty much the complete duo works mm -hmm. um, with cello and with violin uh, with distinguished uh, colleagues Alexander Bailey on the cello and Paul Barrett on the violin and that was great projects and we have of course involved in that there was lots of research and lots of um, uh, performances creating concerts uh, creating recordings sourcing sponsorship you know all kinds <laughs> of things that musicians have to do of course yeah. and that was uh, then I thought well no it's time for me to to play some sonatas and mm -hmm. solo sonatas and I started um, well first of all I had a, a sort of 10 year plan to play all, all 32 mm -hmm. <laughs> that's going to be a 30 year plan <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah so it you know as soon one as once year, yes <laughs> as soon as you start playing a few you think oh no I want to do those a bit more yeah and yeah so um, I'm finding uh, that the pre that you know I, I need a few extra years in my life to, to keep doing that but and who knows whether I'll, I'll be completist or not. <laughs> um, and uh, Schubert, as I said, was something I started in 1997. And then around the millennium, I, I, I mounted a, a cycle of the sonatas in the Purcell room. And I put into that, uh, in every concert, there'd be one Schubert sonata, which mm -hmm. there are 21, plus I played lots of other pieces of Schubert. But I also put in contemporary music and brought uh, lots of artists together. So in a way, it was also part of a, it. Was, it was just a thread that drew together all the different um, things that I used to do. I had a piano trio uh, that played rare music. Mm -hmm. So we played Scharfinka and Björnson and all kinds of things. I had um, a very lucky... Uh, um, meeting with Emma Kirkby, the wonderful oh, yes. soprano. Yes. So we worked together in this series as well. News presenter Richard Baker. We put on Enoch Arden of, of Richard Strauss, a melodrama. All kinds of things. We had pieces written for the series. And actually that was such a sort of rich um, learning experience, an indulgent experience for me as well, because I just played what I wanted. Mm -hmm. I invited friends um, and ensembles. And so, yes, and so Schubert has, has, has been an old friend. And I... I'm surprised at the directions it's going um, in my life. It's now, I now, I've taken it, for instance, in, geographically, I'm taking it to India now. So wow. I'm playing the first cycle of the piano sonatas in India, wow. in Mumbai, which again is creating new friends mm -hmm. and teaching experiences with um, young children in Mumbai. And um, that's, and also new reactions from audiences um, out there who are incredibly knowledgeable, amazing, mm -hmm. uh, great connoisseurs. Um, that's been exciting, but also has been exciting in how I sort of the the my views have becoming quite entrenched, I suppose, in and 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 rather different from the way I used to play it. Mm -hmm. it's, um, I'm beginning to I've looked um, looked very closely at the scores when I started this project. I'm thinking, okay, I'll play Schubert. Mm -hmm. There was a great moment in terms of Schubert scholarship, and that we had had a new edition of the Piano Sonatas yeah. by the wonderful scholar and pianist. Uh, Martina Terimo mm -hmm. and uh, this came along and I thought well now at least we know we have a, a stronger view of what the text really says mm -hmm. and with all its inconsistencies so I loved the inconsistencies because mm -hmm. when you looked at a Beethoven piano cycle everything was trimmed and and sort of neat and Henley would print it and it would look solid and mm -hmm. you needn't change anything mm -hmm. 
Whereas when you looked at Schubert, it seemed to be lots of conjecture. Whereas okay. what happened here was we had an edition that would give us a very clear view of all the changes that Schubert makes throughout a long movement. You know, quite often people criticise him for writing um, movements that ramble. Okay. But what I noticed was a narrative that um, um, that he, he might write similar notes, but he'd write different phrasings or dynamics. Mm and the range of articulations uh, that he seems to be asking for, often different things throughout the texture. That, mm. for me, reflected more bowings and, yeah. and such like. And plus, of course, the, the inspiration of vocal music and mm. a whole substrata of literary illusion and psychological perspectives was absolutely mm. fascinating. And that's just deepened and continued as almost like research. I mean, yeah. I, you know, I, hope, I hope it's an enjoyable experience for an audience. But uh, for me, it's 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 just researching this music and living with it every day. You mm -hmm. know, you see where I live, and you see my piano, yeah. <laughs> number one eleven bus route. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and so every day, I'm allowed I'm I'm allowed to sort of investigate further with this music, and it's been quite fun. Um, it's quite a um, uh, not fun is not the word, but uh, it's been an exciting uh, adventure to, as it were, and pay homage to the to the, the people I listened to in my youth in, Sch in Schubert, people like Clifford Curzon, sometimes Alfred Brendel, mm -hmm. uh, sometimes Rudolf Serkin, um, and sometimes Piresh perhaps. Um, some people, I, some of them I liked very much, some of them I argued with. But and now I think, yeah, now I want to play it how I want to play it, which is why I called it Endgame. Uh, okay. The, the title Endgame also means lots of things. It can be late music. Um, and I, what I thought was that the late music appears to be quite stimulating, playful music or authoritative music doesn't necessarily mean it's valedictory or maudlin or sentimental. And um, but it also means that it can it, it, there should be games there, you know. So there may be some music that will be put into the series as it, as it evolves. At the moment, it's four recitals, mm -hmm. but as it evolves, I shall put in perhaps music to do with playing. Um, game playing, but also ends, and for ends, ends can be both ends. <laughs> it can be the start and the end. So mm -hmm. there may be some early music, and there may be pieces such as the sonata and Op Opus Hundred and Nine of Beethoven that I'm playing, where the theme comes back at the end. Mm -hmm. uh, so that you know, obviously, Gobbo Variations is an, um, an example where mm -hmm. which could be something which would be swallowed up into end game as a creative concept. Mm -hmm. Plus, you know, at the moment I've got these four composers. But I keep promising myself I'd love to learn a Scribbin Sinatra. I've never performed a Scribbin Sinatra, okay. so why not try number 10? Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, late Ratmaninoff, um, I love playing. So um, And, and yeah. a, a, um, a composer that writes for me from time to time, uh, Jan Friend, a wonderful okay. Dutch composer. He um, He's a very, very youthful 81-year-old. Um, uh, and But he says that he's been writing in the last 10 years in the same way that perhaps late Debussy did, uh, mm -hmm. in a parallel, you know, sudden, sudden flourishing of creativity. So late Debussy is another example of something, okay, well, if I'm doing Endgame, that's a choice made for me. I've got to learn, I've got to buckle down and learn some Debussy etudes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so if, for me, it's, it's, it's a sort of self-propagating research project which okay. again you know um it, it fertilizes my everyday work at the piano and and meetings with audiences and um, and you today mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. right. so so how have your audiences responded well so, so far fun. i've been playing endgame one which is the first mm -hmm. program of the series and i've been playing it since may mm -hmm. uh, it's the longest i've played a program without changing it because mm -hmm. um, usually i'm sort of 
eating up music throughout the season. This mm-hmm. is also a new stage of growing up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just mm-hmm. be realistic and learn a little bit less music, mm-hmm. um, but uh, but prepare it at a more deeper level. So, um, and well, these are all works in this particular subset. These are all works that people know intimately and they have very strong views on. Mm-hmm. So that's fascinating. People come forward and say, oh, I hadn't noticed that before. Or why do you do that so fast or so dry? Or, or you know, it's wonderful to, to be argued with. Um, yeah. But so far, and, and also some people who've been to the concerts, they've heard me in the past and they've said things like, oh, you're still having a problem with that memory in such and such, <gasps> such, such a fugue or whatever. Yeah. So all of this is means it's 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 lots of feedback and lots of um, developmental work in terms of working out new ways to be more reliable at the piano, um, how to be more truthful as an artist. Mm. Um, um, yes, yeah, so it, 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 I found it very uh, very fascin- uh, fascinating and rewarding mm-hmm. process to start. And um, I would say the one work that causes um, the big, the strongest reaction in the this first concert is not the Beethoven Sonata. Um, Haydn Sonata is always regarded as as, as um, very lively, and, and mm. people find find him very ultimately imaginative. But Schubert's Sonata in C minor is so unlike Schubert or, or people's view of Schubert. Um, and also quite a colossus. It's not as long as some of the, uh, the other two late sonatas, but it is a colossus in terms of its virtuosity mm-hmm. and its energy and its relentless character, dark, huge character, um, an extraordinary monument to Beethoven. Um, uh, written one, or the started to, he started to sketch it one year after Beethoven died. And um, it's, it seems to have some of the same uh, motives and ideas that Beethoven um, developed. But Schubert developed, takes them, makes them clear that these are Beethoven, but then makes them his immediately and almost takes them further. Uh, particularly the last one, which he takes to the point of almost absurdity. <laughs> when one is playing, you think, well, this is crazy. So many notes. Yeah. <laughs> 723 bars of... of um, uh, of driving Tarantella rhythms. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm driving halfway through one thing, so there must be better jobs than this. <laughs> but, uh, oh, how how do you feel? I mean, you're tackling these, you know, these these great works, but I guess in pianism, I think there's sometimes a bit of a tendency to put these composers on pedestals, yeah. whereas it seems like you know you're trying to find more, I suppose personal approach maybe one where you can like you were saying earlier that you want to be more free with the music mm, you know yes well i think one if you live with it you become you begin to realize that it's it's distinctly human music um i think that the pedestal approach really only comes from pedagogues okay. and, and from the music industry you know yeah. the people who write about it you know the journalists the who try to sell it yes well, you, it? if you think about how these particular works are usually sold let's take the beethoven and the schubert beethoven yeah. well it's, it's always transcendental lofty spiritual yeah. you know yeah. godlike and, yeah. um, and schubert is always regarded as oh this poor man dying you know <laughs> yeah. uh, um, so young and, and and almost given this maudlin sentimental tragic yeah. but in fact the music seems to hold up to be extremely positive extremely human in its um, communication with the present day and it seems completely contemporary as well i don't yeah. i don't feel within this program of four composers there's anything which feels one has to 
play in a period way. Okay. It feels just like music. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, it's a sort of anodyne comment, okay. but um, it, it feels a very natural way of expressing, and it's so beautifully written. The yeah. uh, in terms of the notation says so much about what we need to do, which yeah. as being um, a, a, a being of a certain age, one can begin to say, right, I'm going to try and walk away from traditions and music should sound like this or, um, and try and just see what the music says in terms of a, a, of a text and yeah. with these modern texts which um, the ur text yeah. look look very clean and, and we can see we can start again what does it mean mm. when somebody phrases a note um, or in the case of the Chopin nocturnes when he writes a huge long phrase what does that mean yeah. and all of these things which I may have not really noticed very, very much when I was a young player or yeah. decided that they were irrelevant. Things like pedalling, for instance, or mm -hmm. in Chopin Nocturnes. The pedalling is really specifically written out. Mm -hmm. Now, does that mean that we shouldn't pedal in between when it's not marked? Well, mm -hmm. I think probably we should try not to or give the impression that we're not doing so. And that's something that perhaps is not taught or in, in the to the majority of let's say piano students in mm. a conservatoire from yeah. our early conversation about yeah universities and conservatoires sure, sure. so um yeah for me that's been uh, uh i thinking well let's push that pu push that criteria as far as i can and see whether it works and sometimes people will say for goodness sake it's just too dry it's too astringent oh. or some of the pedals are too too long and they've they, they give a rather misty sound. Um, and so, but, but however, um, I found that by pushing that approach a bit more, into a more extreme way and try, also trying to understand the implications of the notation in terms of a written out rubato, um, uh -huh. um, I found that it, it perhaps one ends up at very similar uh, solutions to to the way people were playing who were born in the middle of the 19th century you know mm. um, you know my teacher was born in 1908 i think okay. and her teacher was born in 1860 wow. <laughs> <laughs> you know which is quite wow. a thought you know a good her teacher was a good friend of debussy wow. and uh and he studied with the people of chopin yeah so um and worked with sanson and worked a new list and new bazzoni and anescu yeah. and all these people and there did seem to be a way um, within Europe, a sort of lingua franca of yeah, how yeah. people did things, which has been rather erased over the last 70 years of teaching in the 20th century and 21st century, yeah. um, as if, no, we've progressed from that. But in fact, they just they just thought, no, this is the way we play, this is how scores work. And um, they used to mock a lot of the things we um, we now consider to be 19th century practice. In fact, my teacher, this is really third-hand uh, history here, she gave an impression of her teacher playing like somebody from the middle of the 19th okay. century, right? And he, she, was, she said that he would sometimes do a sort of mocking approach. He'd play the piano, he'd okay. split his hands terribly okay. and add extra octaves in the bass. Yeah, yeah. And he said, this is how people, this is how the bad pianist played in the 19th century. Okay. And, and he said that when he went to play, um, this is Isidore Philip was his name, and when he went to play to... Um, Sanson, who's a great friend of his, and Sanson said, oh my goodness, can you just play cleanly, play your hands together, yeah. play in time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this, why haven't you looked carefully at the score? Mm -hmm. um, and all of these were quite modern ideas and sometimes even decried by modern, modern teachers. You know, oh no, no, you can't play just the notes, you can't, 
you've got to adapt the pedaling for modern instruments. Yeah. But that wasn't considered, you know, in the 1830s, 1840s, uh, when when Phyllis was uh, Phyllis Selig was developing. And I thought, in my approach to the end game, I would look again at these principles. You know, good editions, all accepted older ways of playing and maybe even uh, aesthetic values of the time as well. Often restraint, strong pulses, um, uh, clarity, um, and also not being afraid of pedal effects, which are sometimes quite um, extreme on the modern piano. Okay. That, which is the case in Chopin, but it's also the case in this first Haydn sonata in Endgame 1, because okay. it's, it's one of the first examples of a pedal um, being written. Uh, oh, I, th I, think, um, uh, I think that there's um, a pedal marking in a, in a uh, sketch for a study by Beethoven, the young okay. Beethoven, yeah. and he says um, mit dem knie, mm -hmm. you know, with your knee, because you press okay. the knee lever, that's right, oh, on, the, pia on okay. the piano. And it creates a blur, mm. his effect. And in Haydn's sonata, written a little bit later, um, he, he says open the pedal. Now, we will argue about what he means here, but I've I use it to create a blur as just within a, a, a movement of great clarity. Yeah. Suddenly he says, "All right, now create a blur." Okay. <laughs> and it's it it sort of stops stops time when yeah. you hear this blur, and I don't think it can be apologised for. Um, that sounds like quite a risky thing to do today, <laughs> isn't it? It is. Yes. It's usually the piano teachers um, in the, in the in the um, uh, audience will sort of tut and say okay. such bad bad okay. pedaling. <laughs> But I think nowadays we are seeing, you know, the Beethoven wrote really dramatic pedal effects. Okay. And, um, and um, we're beginning to get away from using the pedal to make things clear, okay. but using the, the pedal in a way that perhaps a great painter might push together colours and blends and things. Yeah. And often, often the audiences, they just find it like a magical sound. They don't have any prejudices that okay. perhaps someone who's been trained in music might have. Yeah. <laughs> so they, they're very open to it. Mm. When did the pedal start to come about in piano playing? Well, if you consider the, the, the sort of nascence of the instrument, there wasn't a damper. No. So, um, so the, in, in a way, the pedal was, the piano was open in the days of Cristofori, uh, mm -hmm. the beginning of that 18th century. Um, uh, but as, as, the, as the sound grew and the, and the instrument got more powerful, you, you'd need dampers. So there were, there were knee, knee um, in, you know, all the way through the 18th century, from the mid 18th century, there were knee levers, and then finally the you know the more suitably named pedal yeah, yeah. for the foot towards the end of the 18th century. So, and we can we could go and play now. We're so lucky we can go and play at Finchcox. Well, Finchcox has gone now, but yeah, um, it's uh, closed down. It's closed. Oh, yes, it's now. It's still a beautiful place where they put on piano courses, yeah. and there are still some old pianos there, but they're, they're not the the large collection that oh, okay. there was there. And there's um, is it called Clandon Park? Uh, Hatchlands. Oh, okay. Yes, um, so I've played there on okay. the instruments, um, okay. and one comes across, uh, particularly when I was travelling with um, Emma Kirkby. Yes, <laughs> I was yes. encouraged more to play on forte pianos course, and Viennese yeah. instruments yeah. and such like, and and Walters uh, from the late eighteenth century, and I found actually my approach to the modern piano worked rather well on them. I found I found it to be oh, not not really radically different. That's interesting. Um, yes, I, I thought so at first when I did a weekend where I played all the, la the late Schubert sonatas on a Viennese piano. 
And I thought, well, I'm going to have to really transform my technique. And I thought, no, yeah. this is this just seems to make sense for me. Oh, there was another thing okay. that made sense. You know, I'm sure if you if you play the piano, you'll know yeah. that if you play Schubert, you're asked to play very quietly a lot yeah. of the time. Okay. So you you play you attempt to play pianissimo for a whole page, and then he yeah. says, right now, do a diminuendo. Yeah. <laughs> and okay. then you think, well, how do I do this? But I mean, the, in fact, the piano is with extra pedals. You know, the the, 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 the damper the damper pedals, but also the sort of muting pedals as well. They they show that that these composers wanted lots of different colours. Yeah. And they recognised that dynamics were not volumes but characters so, yeah i suppose um, it's more of a color isn't it that's it exactly yeah, yeah. yeah. so that that also liberates what we do because on the modern piano we think it's such an amazing piece of technology yeah. that it can play really really soft and really loud but yeah i'm not sure that it's essentially made to do that uh, we should oh, instead okay. try and make different characters and colors as you're saying that's very interesting but, um, i believe that i'm again i'm speaking on top of my head i think there was um I think it was Nikolai Jemidenko, who um, who lives in Surrey or used to live in Surrey, a great Russian pianist, was talking about examining uh, an instrument that Rachmaninoff had recorded upon. I don't know the exact technology, but it was one that measured the pressures that he um, had so that to, to make indications of his um, dynamics. And he didn't play very loud and he didn't play very soft, softly, but he orchestrated the sound very beautifully. And there was another... Um, influence like this and that was Ben Mazevich, um, a Russian pianist who, who was a great interpreter of, of um, uh, Rachmaninoff and he came to live in England about mm. around 1910-1911 and when asked about how did he produce such a great sound he said well if it says double forte I only play forte and if it says pianissimo I play piano. <laughs> he brought everything to the middle but okay. changed the colour. Nobody thought yeah. of him as having any limits in okay. his sound but they thought he had a perfect sound. Yeah. So as this bringing it to the middle and making as uh, maybe rather more articulation um, yeah. uh, and varieties of articulation and character uh, that was more important. Yeah. I suppose we see the same. If we, if we go to the opera and we see, uh, I'm always amazed at the end of acts of um, uh, Mozart operas, yeah. you know, where you get all the characters in a row in front of the character. Um, yeah, you the... do that mashup, don't they? <laughs> that's it, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. And you know, you know, you can hear the soprano singing this long line and the yeah, bass, yeah. bass maybe saying short words, and then there's usually the interesting person is the alto, isn't she? Because you know, the maid yeah, is yeah. the best character. Yeah. <laughs> we all we all empathise with her, and they, but they all have different characters, and and uh, but they don't necessarily sing quiet and loud. No. They sing with different um, uh, different articulations. And of yeah. course, the, the, the loud pedal, the sustaining pedal, is the enemy of that on, on a modern piano. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm very lucky in, in the Endgame series to have chosen this philosophy, but also chosen beautiful halls. Um, so yeah. I'm taking it to Bristol okay. and to St George's Hall, which uh, St George's Bristol, which I think is probably the best hall for piano recitals in the country. Okay. Um, with a lovely piano as well. I've not played it. People speak a lot about snake maltings, but okay. I've never played there. Oh, it's beautiful. Yes. I've been there a few times. I've not yeah. even been there. I oh, okay. Oh, <laughs> oh, I must go, yes. Yeah. Yes. What have you seen there? Oh, well, I was there at the um, the Orba Festival. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I was there a few years ago. We were there for holiday, so. Right. Oh. Let's see if you could. Oh, it was Louis Lottie, actually. Oh, well, yeah, well, gosh, yeah. yes. Chopin and Debussy, yeah. I think, so. But yeah. it's meant to be a very special acoustic, isn't it? Yeah, and it was great. Yeah, really oh, well, one day. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so, so I mean, in terms of the venues then, I mean, um, are they chosen for you by the promoters or...? Well, a lot of it just evolved as soon as I started writing around. So I've been playing in um, 
uh, when I was in France during the summer, I played in something, something which was essentially a very beautiful small hotel, a stone room okay. and uh, very intimate with a lovely piano. This weekend I've been in um, the northernmost uh, tip of, <laughs> of Germany wow. and that was a tiny, tiny little hall, tiny little room really mm-hmm. um, and that was great fun on a, on a quite modest piano and the next day I went to Belgium and played in a monastery on a, uh, an old Ebach concert ground wow. so that was an entirely different experience. Um, I'm playing, I've played it, I've played in art galleries, um, I'll be playing it in the lovely, uh, um, it's called the the Arts Club, the 1901 Arts oh, Club yes, on yes, Mondays. So I put on a little pity said, concert yeah, series yeah. Um, and uh, in aid of the Amber Trust, oh, yes, who, yes. Who, who support young blind musicians. Yeah. And uh, so that's, again, a, a lovely intimate place where mm-hmm. the, the approach, I think, of the sort of narrative approach with this great music and the, the, the sort of instrumental choices I'm making work particularly well. This music, I think, is designed for you know not more than 150, 200 people at a time. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, totally. one has to distort it somewhat. <laughs> yeah, totally. Because I think, you know, for example, you know, you go into the, the Wigmore Hall, for example, and I think these pieces often get put in a bit of a vacuum, don't they? Yes. Whereas, actually, you know, like like you were saying, I mean, you got the Shibatiads. They would have been originally performed, you know, with a small audience yes i i mean I, there is a there's definitely a place for the standard concert hall yeah, yeah and the beautiful the beautiful piano and i hopefully i'm i am getting a mix because i've got the sort of small quirky places yeah yeah but i've also got st george's which is a beautiful it, it seems to be a good compromise and west road in cambridge oh yes, you know, that's yes. a sort of you know modern concert hall style yeah um where it works very well. Wigmore, of course, would be. I'm not playing this at the Wigmore, but it, okay. it, it is. A, you know, it's a wonderful place for us to play. Yeah, yeah. And uh, but it, it it can make music sound very beautiful. Yeah. Uh, and I sometimes not sure that beautiful sounding music is what we're after with this okay. music. We're ask, we're instead waiting for music to speak. Okay. And therefore, a drier acoustic can sometimes be a, a, an advantage, or okay. a closer acoustic can also be more overwhelming. Yeah. So and uh, so, for instance, Schubert's last sonata, experienced close up, is not last sonata. The sorry, the C minor sonata I'm playing last in this program. That close two really does give a monumental um, impact, mm-hmm. and the uh, the energy of, of the performer and, uh, and and the invention of the composer become, I think, all the more impressive than they possibly can do, even in a, a great concert hall like the Wigmore. Yeah. And I guess also with the different venues you play at, you have to also take into consideration the pianos that you're mm. playing, the acoustics, and I wonder how much time you get beforehand to... I just try the piano stool. And, okay. Yeah, <laughs> no, I don't try the piano. I try the stool um, because I tend to make stools um, make noises. If okay. I'm <laughs> and I just check that I'm comfortable. I'll obviously try the odd note. But it's so uh, it's no point really until you get the audience in the room. You, you, it's no, it'll where it changes radically. If you if you spend the afternoon practicing in an empty hall, it's always a strange moment when you realise that everything has been adjusted for um, uh, a. You exhaust yourself, but also b. You've adjusted yourself for a situation which doesn't exist because now you have lots of 
you know, warm people. Exactly. Yeah. All soft and yeah, yeah. absorbent. <laughs> and and so now everything is different. So it's better to I think to live in the moment and just start to improvise the concert from the beginning of the concert. And mm-hmm. so this particular programme starts with um, a, an arresting single note, a G, which is forte, and it's a, as it were starts the um, the event. Um, and that, for me, is probably will be the first time I play the piano. And, and from that moment, I think, oh, this is how this note sounds. I shall listen to how that sounds, not under my fingers, but in the hall. And then play the next phrase is pianissimo, and and so um, it's it's a it's for me it's fantastic. I don't really need anything more than that. You know, mm. I should just get going. I've, in the first page, I have to play a whole passage pianissimo, then the next passage piano, then forte fortissimo, and then I'm underway. I, mean, I don't think I need to warm up. <laughs> wow. Okay. So, um, uh, so and well, what it is is what it'll be. Yeah. <laughs> It seems to be, it's not an unusual way of behaving. Um, we hear that Richter did something very similar and, and okay. Glenn Gould um, said it's best, you know, to leave, to not to go close to the piano yeah. until the moment of a concert. Yeah. The times that I have um, spent backstage rehearsing and doing my exercises, and rehearsing, <laughs> I've nearly always damaged my hands or exhausted myself. I can <laughs> yeah. 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 And I guess that you've now got to that stage in your career now where I guess you can just, you can just trust the performance and maybe perhaps when you're younger you know maybe you're more self-conscious and you had to do more in order to prepare for the performance well i think so i think there was a feeling that i wasn't ever warm enough and that okay. i had to warm up i do remember i don't know whether yeah. that's purely um blood flow okay. um <laughs> but uh certainly i do remember that it was always a worry about cold hands and, yeah. and now i just feel that the hands i take in from the street and sit down yeah. they seem to work in the same way um um, I think a lot of it is a placebo effect so. as well. Yeah. yeah. A lot of my work now is done in my head as well, exactly. rather than too much at the, yeah. ke- the keyboard. So know. much of it is, I'd say that so much of performance, I'd say that more of it is psychological than actually yeah. the physical stuff. Because I mean, everybody says, in order to prepare a performance, you must be as prepared as you possibly can. <laughs> but no matter how much you prepare, like you never know what's going to happen in performance. No, no. So, yeah. There is a moment, of course, uh, I've mentioned playing this programme all the way since May, and there's a moment where you think, great, I can practice and practice. But then that's dangerous because you get to a point where you're chasing uh, a sort of ideal perfectionism. Yeah, and you can almost over-rehearse, yeah. can't you? Yeah, and, it, and particularly in terms of memorising programmes yeah. like this, it can go into your subconscious. And and that allows time for you to think, oh, I'm an imposter, or <laughs> <laughs> or that that person sneezed or something, you know, mm-hmm. instead of just getting on with the business of thinking the music and living the music. Yeah. Makes it more of an event. So, yes, yeah, so the, the work I do uh, a lot on this programme is think, uh, uh, thinking about the music and, and uh, trying as much as possible to visualise it rather than working my fingers to the bone. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. How did you get into the piano? My parents, uh, my mother was a school nurse. My father worked um, as a scientist. Yeah. I don't know what he did because it was behind the wire at Aldermaston. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, he, um, but they were both in, interested in education and they bought a piano for 19 shillings. <gasps> 19 shillings, not even one pound. Okay. And it was a lovely piano, uh, an, a, a, an upright cottage size uh, player with them. Uh, wow. Lots of inlay on it and candlestick holders, and, and its pitch was about four thirty. Uh, and so when I was about four or five, I would start to 
make up tunes on it. Wow. And I also learnt my pitch at 4.30. But you already had that experience of, you know, the forte piano. Yeah, that's right. I, I assume so, yes. With the Haydn as well. Yes, you know, that's, that's right. amazing. Wow. <laughs> but then, then when I was about five and a half, we, um, uh, a composer came to my local school called Gordon Jacob. He was um, a, a sort of advisor for Hampshire County Council. He came mm. around the school and said, well, you do need a piano which is at the right pitch. And it was perfect. I mean, when you're a tiny child who was absorbing pitch, we bought the new piano at 440, uh-huh. A440, and one absorbed it straight away. Okay. It's quite normal. Yeah. Uh, you don't you don't worry about that as a child. And I had a very good teacher who was a, a pupil of Villaselic, who lived close by. I rather grudgingly learned the violin and viola, mm-hmm. which I never felt very comfortable with. Okay. But, uh, but it gave me experience being in a really good youth orchestras yeah. in the county. Uh, very inspirational musicians. Uh, Hampshire was blessed by, well, f- eventual members of the Takash Quartet and principals in the London orchestras, you know, and they were all sort of growing up at the same time as I was. And so I was able to see, I was able to have their influence and, and play chamber music with them. So, you know, I, I learned Brahms clarinet sonatas and, yeah, and yeah. Um, my school did a wonderful performance of the Elgar Piano Quintet when I was very young, you know, with, with good players. And mm. so that was all very stimulating. I just took it as completely normal. That's what life was like. Okay. And so that's a, that, that encouraged me to go into to the Royal College yeah. where my teacher taught. And when I got there, I was siphoned, pushed to one side and told to do the degree, which I resented because it meant a lot of essays. Yeah. <laughs> Not very much time to practice, but actually okay. it gave me fantastic contact with great teachers. Um, my supervisor was um, a composer, Alan Ridout. Uh, yes. Yes, Alan And then uh, the dearly, uh, dearly missed um, um, Roderick Swanston, who okay. died last year. A great broadcaster, great bon viveur, and a huge intellect. Um, and so he he stimulated and challenged and teased us. Um, Anthony Milner taught us um, theory, mm-hmm. <laughs> and we had uh, um, you know very good analytical teaching from uh, from from Roddy again. Wow. But also John Lambert, uh, uh, who was there, a composer and. Uh, himself a pupil of Nadia Boulanger so they were, it was all fascinating people and they were yeah. you know nothing against my instrumental teachers it was it was uh, my uh, it was fascinating to be challenged by them because they, they often used to tease us as um, conservatoire students as, as saying you know just fingers you know no, nothing <laughs> yeah, is going yeah. on between your ears okay. so they would challenge us and, and tell us to listen to things which you know from the second Viennese school and, and Darmstadt or whatever things which yeah. we may not have um, have uh, progressed towards naturally in the conservatoire uh, atmosphere. Okay. However, it, it brought out some brilliant people. Uh, you know, the year younger than me, or two years younger than maybe, was a fantastic pianist in terms of the contemporary music, which was Rolf Hind. Oh yes, yes. yeah. So um, and uh, and yet we had also um, great musicians, stunning virtuoso at the time, um, Barry Douglas, who's oh, yes, had a huge yes. career. You know, and so it was a it was a great place to be, um, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, my year had uh, also a wonderful clarinetist, uh, Michael White, that I'm doing the Messian Quartet with in, um, in November. And yet one more wonderful clarinetist, uh, Michael Collins. Oh, yes. Uh, yes. <laughs> so uh, it, it was, it was uh, very stimulating groups, groups of people. And everybody was sort of playing off against each other um, mm-hmm. um, with, with performances. And it, it was taken for granted that um, people were doing exciting work outside the college. There was, I remember... Uh, 
um, there was another pianist called Paul Coker who was playing for Minuin at the time and also Benny Goodman. Oh, wow. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, it was, it was very exciting. Yeah. Uh, that's, the, that's the 1980s. Yeah. But it seems now that the college experience, it seems like it's a very different experience maybe compared to your time. I mm. don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I think the standard's very high now. Um, yeah. It's very high ex in, in terms of executive performance. Yeah. Uh, there were there were certainly in my year and my time at, at the college, there were people who really couldn't play very well, but they've had very good a good um, uh, education and have gone into lots of different roles in the music business or gone into other roles altogether. Mm -hmm. But I think I think that the you know the great funding cuts at the end of the eighties and beginning of the nineties meant that. Uh, it was imperative for the, the the colleges to get a lot of um, students from abroad, which raised the level to the point almost yeah. in, in extremists where the British musicians couldn't get into were were, were yeah. in a huge minority. Yeah. But uh, I think that the technical standards are very high now. Whether the imaginative standards and the standards even of um, I don't mean to split say anything against the teachers, but yeah. Uh, in in terms of the influences of of um, uh, the sort of maverick um, uh, influences that you were exposed to at the Royal College in my day, um, whether they still exist or they're 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 allowed for uh, with the mm. present regime, um, okay. I don't know at all. But uh, <laughs> it's yeah. really not for me to say. I've had a few experiences with it. I've examined there. Yeah. And I think actually, you know, every young generation that comes along, they they come along with their own ideas, and the teachers can try and exert some influence. But actually, every, everybody's an individuality, and and people who who devote themselves sufficiently to be able to enter. Royal College, Royal Academy, Guildhall, Royal Northern, all these places, uh, they, they demand listening to because it's, it's, it's a lifestyle choice. <laughs> you have to give up a lot yeah. um, to, to devote yourself to a life of music. Yeah. So I, I respect them. With your Endgame concert series, I mean, how do you want to, what do you want to do with it in the future? I mean, how do you want to kind of yeah. develop it? I mean, what? you said earlier that, you know, you wanted to perhaps think about maybe incorporating some earlier repertoire, for example? Well, yeah, other repertoire, yes. Late, later, 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 later That's right, yes, or... indeed, yes. Well, I shall definitely in, involve some pieces that have been written for me by Jan Freemd. Yeah. And and some, some later, some, also some areas of music that I have perhaps played some of, but need, uh, uh, but need to investigate further. Um, and I just, I am open to, well, as I do with nearly all my projects, I tend to sort of mind map them. Okay. So I write in them, and this is, the, this is the, the way I'm going to live for the next couple of seasons, and then see what comes from it. And amazing, as soon as you put it on a mind map, you can see that the idea can go in every direction. Yeah. So um, it may be that um, the modern world needs uh, for, for you to survive as a mission, it's not making compact discs anymore. That used uh -huh. to be, that seems to me slightly old hat to make compact discs. Um, I still like CDs. Uh, I love CDs. Perhaps you're old fashioned. <laughs> yeah, like, it's interesting. Like even the younger generation, like still loves like CDs and vinyl. And... I, I think I think the younger, well, my I would take issue. I would say that the younger generation may like vinyl, and I think that's just fashion. Um, okay. Uh, I think I'd, I'm sorry if I'm, I'm uh, offending you, but the uh, I think no, I, I totally understand. Yeah, like, there's a lot of download that we want to. That almost there's kind of this idea that the youth almost want to experience what the what their kind of parents did but mm. i think it's a bit of a 
superficial way, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, well, I think I think I, for me, uh, I, I love the vinyl approach because I grew up with vinyl, and vinyl was brilliant because it had all the notes were on the back. Yeah, so yeah. there was a, 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 a sort of finite amount of information printed in legibly on the back. You didn't need to break the plastic jewel box to get mm-hmm. at this tiny printed little notebook. So CDs produce fantastic, overly clear sound, mm, mm. <laughs> but which are, and I've got thousands of them. Yeah, and out there <laughs> as well. I mean, I've got such a collection. Um, um, but for me, that then of course downloads have come across where it's very easy, and one listens to them on such. Uh, strange platforms you know I'm quite happy to listen to things on my phone whereas mm. I know, I've got a you know high-powered hi-fi in the other room which I hardly ever yeah. s- switch on now okay. um, but I think that uh, also the v- idea of video now interests interests me as the way forward mm. in uh, short videos yeah um, the way forward with social media and also just as a huge discipline performing because it takes us back to performing things in an unedited way yeah um and which uh i've been through the studio process with recordings Mm. as you've seen up on my shelves here (laughs) Uh, and uh you know it's an exhausting process and it can be in the wrong hands quite artificial whereas there's a sort of honesty about a video you know uh, most of the time you know you you obviously try to put out your best ones because you're vain but um no i think it it gets us back to a situation where you prepare in a different way um Mm. for a real event and um quite a challenging event to produce a a, a strong strong uh message in in a a video of, of a performance yeah. Well, at the same time, perhaps, you know, communicating with the people in the hall. Mm-hmm. But um, so, no, I, I'm quite a, I'm quite intrigued to see whether I can do with this particular program, whether I can produce, be brave enough to produce short videos, yeah. maybe even with spoken introductions or, you know, just something that that will challenge me and develop yeah. me. So is there anything that you want to say um, before we finish or? Um, I don't think there is. Okay. <laughs> Where can people see your Endgame concert series? Right. Well, the Endgame, uh, I suppose my the next set of concerts is it's ongoing, really. But the next set starts next Monday near Waterloo, okay. the 1901 Arts Club. Mm-hmm. And then the next day it will be in the Pitville Pump Room in Cheltenham. Oh, lovely. Yeah, beautiful hall. Oh. And uh, that's uh, the 68th concert of a series that I've given there <gasps> called Masterworks over okay. the last 15 years. And uh, then uh, I think the following week it's a school in Tunbridge Wells. Okay. Then a little venue. I don't know whether uh, it's been on your radar called the Red Hedgehog no. in Archway. It was oh, actually okay. originally two shops, and it then okay. uh, has the concept of sort of being a, a Ronnie Scotts okay. of classical music. Yeah. And then after that, uh, it's going to Bristol, mm-hmm. Cambridge, and finally a lovely hall. Uh, this program finishes. In the Rudolfinum in in Prague, oh, uh, which is uh, a, a great treat to visit the city, and mm. you know, the, the small bother of giving a concert is a subsidiary to to yeah. walking around and eating wonderful Czech food. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I enjoy it very much. Of course, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Pleasure.